Hey everybody, this is Vesna Luka and you are listening to Suma and Friends, the show for people with the courage to care for a wiser future. On the show today, Harvard Business School professor George Serafaim and Rainier Indal, founder and managing partner of Suma Equity. Today we'll talk about purpose and profit and the forces that are reshaping the relationship between the two. So George, you have committed many years to truly measure and to truly drive and communicate corporate performance and social impact. So I'm, I'm curious, why? What is driving you? You know, what, what's your passion? Vesna, first of all, thank you for having me on board. And what is my passion? You know, like growing up in Athens, Greece, I witnessed the value of meritocracy and what happens when you actually don't have necessarily meritocracy in a society, in an environment, and why it is extremely, extremely important to actually be able to give opportunities to people that deserve those opportunities. And one of the things that I found was that it's impossible to have meritocracy if you don't have accountability. And the only way to have accountability is if you have good measurement and transparency around the outcomes that you're achieving. And if you have transparency around the outcomes that you're achieving, then you actually can hold people accountable. And once you can hold people accountable, then you can actually have meritocracy in society. And when you do have meritocracy, then you can achieve incredible outcomes that increase prosperity in people. So I think my growing up in Athens, Greece, taught me this lesson. And as a result, I have become obsessed, I would say, with these ideas of accountability and meritocracy. And you are the rock star of ESG uh, nowadays, but, but this was not, of course, a hot topic when you started working with this. So did you, did you feel alone or sometimes even misunderstood? You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a really good question. And I like to say that about 12, 14 years ago, when I started working in this area, and there wasn't really a lot of work in this, many of my good friends told me, just drop it. Just don't work in this area. This is a huge career risk for you. You know, I, I, didn't, have, I didn't have tenure back then. I was at Harvard Business School as a young assistant professor. And I remember a lot of friends that really deeply cared for me they said, why don't you do more traditional research and don't do this crazy stuff? And for me, this has been a clear lesson in terms of the sustainability journey of many leaders, I would say, in this space inside companies and investment firms and other organizations that engaging early on in the sustainability discussion was a lot also about assuming I would say, personal career risk and trying to make a change. But whenever you're trying to do something different, because it is new, in many ways, it can be misunderstood. It's not clear how you are going to be evaluated. And as a result, that differentiation and the newness that comes with it exposes an individual to a risk. But for me, it has been an incredible journey. I have met an amazing number of people, including Rainier. I have learned uh, a lot, I would say, throughout that journey. So for me, that risk is well worth it uh, when I look back. George, are you, 
Are you surprised about how this has turned out and that ESG has become so important and so big? You know, Rainier, I, I am not surprised, actually. And the reason why I'm not surprised is because I have this almost privilege of observing where talent is going into the economy, right? So uh, because I'm at Harvard Business School, I get to interact with some of the most talented young people and I get to observe what drives them, what makes them wake up in the morning, where do we, they want to go and work, what are they expecting? And year over year, I have witnessed this change, I would say, of what attracts talent. And increasingly, what attracts talent is uh, this idea of finding purpose in the workplace and being able to have a meaningful work. Now, if you couple that idea with the idea that actually most of what drives value now inside organizations is their ability to attract and retain human capital, is their ability to create intellectual capital through the innovative capacity of the workforce in the organization and the ability to create social capital with society in terms of trust in the organization and the brand, then you actually reach at the conclusion that increasingly ESG issues are going to become more important. And of course, then you also have the elephant in the room, which is climate change. And over time, more and more people are, are recognizing how important climate change is going to be for the competitiveness of nations around the world, but also how important and devastating in many cases are going to be the physical impacts of climate change for the most vulnerable locations. So that is becoming also more important. So when you put that all in a picture, then you are achieving, I would say, a conclusion that those issues are going to become more and more important for organizations everywhere around the world, I would say. And George, this summer you are uh, launching your new book, Purpose and Profit, after many years of, of research. Is there any way you can make a, a super, super short kind of summary or, or share a teaser for us? I'll try, Vesna, because it's always uh, very hard when you have spent almost 15 years <laughs> trying, to <book> a, <laughs> trying to put a book together. The first part of the book asks the question about why now? Why are we talking about purpose in business, about ESG outcomes, and about the role of the corporation society so much more now? And ask this question and tries to give a sense of why this is happening. And as a teaser, part of what is happening is that both consumers and employees have more choice, actually. I remember when I grew up again in Greece and you would go at the convenience store, you would go just buy milk. There is no question about what kind of milk. There was one milk. And now you go to the supermarket and there's all these different kinds of milk. And the same thing for many other choices that we're having as consumers and the same thing as employees. Because of advancements in technology, you could be sitting in Oslo and you could be looking for a job in uh, Munich or a, through LinkedIn, right? And other platforms or a job in, uh, in Copenhagen, right? And so forth. And as a result, we have more choice, but also that choice has given people a lot more voice about what they're expecting from organizations around the world. And because then of what we discussed before, which is 
What drives competitiveness in organizations increasingly is their social, uh, intellectual, and human capital that has created the link between voice and choice into value for organizations. And of course, all that has been enabled by increasing levels of transparency, meaning we know actually the impacts increasingly that organizations are having on the environment and on their employees and on customers. And that has created a completely different, I would say, management and governance landscape about the intersection between the impact that you're having on an organization and your ability to compete. So that's the first part of the book. And then the second part of the book is really about any one individual. What does this mean for me? How should I think about this change for my career? And what can I do? And I intentionally, Vesna, didn't write this book, I would say, for the CEOs of the Fortune 500. I actually wrote this book for young entrepreneurs, young people in the workforce, mid-level managers, but also more experienced managers and asking the question about what can I do about it? What can I do differently? How can I manage these issues? How can I make career choices? How should I think about these issues in my everyday work life? And this is, this is to a large extent, I would say, a summary of the book. Fantastic. But when you say that you're largely focused on these younger kind of entrepreneurs and, and leaders, is it because you have a little bit given up hope on, on the others? Or No, absolutely not. Because actually, I would say one of the things that I have witnessed is that there are more and more people that are maybe in their mid-level in their career at some point, midpoint in their career, and they are asking themselves, how can I have more impact? How can I actually do things differently and to have more impact? And for me, I still, Rainier, I still remember our discussion, our lunch, probably back in 2013, 14, I think, when you came to an HBS case discussion as a case protagonist and we had lunch and you were thinking about their own, your own impact as a private equity investor, right? And uh, maybe you can actually reflect on that because that discussion that we had is the discussion that now I have had with so many people that have been extremely successful to what they have done, but at the same time, they have reflected on themselves and they have asked the question about how can I have more impact as an individual? I very well remember that discussion, George, and that was instrumental in in me deciding to, to leave private equity and then eventually start uh, SUMA. And what has amazed me is we all can do something because, I mean, these problems we are facing, whether it's climate change or, or social inequality or the pandemic and our war in, in Ukraine, I mean, you feel so small relative to these issues. And you feel like, you know, I can't do anything with it. And that's just, that's just wrong because I see, you know, starting SUMA and what, uh, what we are achieving and how the narrative is changing and how every one of us can really have an impact. It makes me quite optimistic that this is what we need to, to engage in. We all can do a difference. And, and these are all wicked problems. And in wicked problems, there are multiple stakeholders that need to pull in the same direction. And as long as we all do our part, then we will solve this as we did, uh, did some amazing things during the pandemic and solved that challenge. We can if we want to. I very much subscribe to this idea. And 
one point that is really interesting to me is that it's almost like this idea of the invisible hand of the market makes people feel helpless, make people feel that I have no agency. Somehow things are happening. But the reality that you're witnessing in many organizations, actually, and the outcomes that they're achieving is that people make a difference. It's individuals, people that at some point decide to do something different across all levels of the hierarchy, by the way. It's not just CEOs and most senior executives. Across all levels of the hierarchy that are deciding to do something differently, they create a plan, they create coalitions, they collaborate with each other, and they implement change. And I think that is a a more positive way of looking at the impact that we can all have, small or large. It doesn't it doesn't matter actually. Yeah, and and more and more people understand that that purpose and profit go hand in hand. But there are still some skeptics around. So if we want to unpack this, what would you say are the clear upsides, and how how does profit and purpose go hand in hand? Let me start by defining purpose, right? So what purpose is for us inside organizations is for employees to have strong beliefs in the meaning of their work, to have agency to create better outcomes, and also to have aligned incentives in order for them to be able to to empower them and create those outcomes. And one of the things that we have found once you adopt that definition is that actually in many organizations, there is purpose inequality, meaning that when you actually ask people inside the organizations and you go further down the hierarchy of the organization, people have weaker beliefs about purpose of that organization. When you ask senior executives, they have very strong beliefs. You go to middle management, those beliefs get weaker. You go to frontline workers and and so forth, and they're even weaker. And one of the things that we have found is that organizations that are high-performing organizations, they're able to diffuse that sense of purpose throughout the organization. And not only that, but also they can create clarity about that purpose inside the organization, meaning that purpose is not the grand statements that a leader will make at the annual speech or the the keywords around respect and innovation and we're a family that you will find the headquarters, but it's actually the lived experience of the employees inside the workforce and how those are getting diffused and the clarity through which people have in terms of purpose. And once you adopt that, then you actually find, in many ways, a synergistic relationship between purpose and profit for those organizations. But one key theme also on the book is that this is actually not easy. Creating that synergistic relationship is not something that is happening in an easy way in an organization. In many ways, you need really a transformation of the organization, a cultural transformation, and a transformation in terms of governance and incentives, a transformation in terms of the metrics that you use and the management tools and systems that you have developed, and really a transformation of how you think about everything, really, that an organization might be doing and how you're making decisions. So a key, a key actually message is that this is not easy. The idea that you will hire 
two or three people in the sustainability department, you will produce a sustainability report and suddenly great things are happening. It's just not true. It's much more closer to a transformation process in order to create this synergistic relationship where purpose is the, is, is actually the driver and profit is actually the outcome of what is happening because of a strong sense of purpose. And you're, you're absolutely right, George. And we, we have talked about this uh, in, in our portfolio companies. And, you know, we are majority owners in our companies. Uh, so we can affect this and we can set the targets and work with management to keep them accountable for the impact targets and the sustainability targets that they set. That is much more difficult in, uh, in a public companies because you don't have as strong owners as we are. How, how do you see that, you know, the public market and how they are embracing sustainability and ESG versus sort of how Summa is doing it in, in our portfolio? Rainier, actually spot on with my colleague Claudine Gartenberg. Actually, we have uh, a paper that is forthcoming now where we show and we test the relationship between what we call owner commitment and corporate purpose. And one of the things that we are showing is that, in general, on average, publicly listed firms have weaker, weaker beliefs of their employees in their purpose compared to private firms. And we're also finding that the, the sense of purpose is directly related to ownership commitment in terms of more long-term ownership, for example, and stronger commitment to the organization is actually related also to stronger leadership commitment in terms of the leadership team, a stronger sense through which the value benefits of the organization are distributed. So you have more pay for performance structure for more employees inside the organizations where, for example, bonus tends to be a bigger component of the total comp for more employees. So you share more of the value creation throughout the organization. So this is exactly what we're finding. And I think a big challenge for publicly listed firms is how to create that sense of commitment inside the organization. And I think that is a bigger challenge that will exist for publicly listed firms. So it might be that Nikolai Tangen, uh, my friend who's heading up the Norwegian oil fund, is listening uh, to this. And uh, the oil fund, uh, I mean, they own 1% to 2% of all companies globally, uh, listed companies. What would be your advice to him and the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund? How should they do agency in their ownership in order to, to, to drive this in public companies? I think there are a couple of things that long-term owners could do. The first one is to basically engage with management and say that we are actually owners for the long term. We have been owning the company for the stock of the company for a long time. And we would like to keep owning the company for a very, very long time because we believe in the business model strength and the management strength. And then asking a couple of really key questions, uh, which is how do we actually employees feel about their own commitment to the organization? Do they feel that actually they have the agency to drive the performance of the organization, the impact of the organization forward? And do they have aligned incentives? to actually do the right thing for the long-term prosperity of the organization. So I think long-term owners engaging with company and making their voice heard 
is extremely important because the loudest voices actually in public capital markets are not necessarily the long-term voices. They are the voices that ask the question about how is the company going to do in the next quarter? This is most of the voice that has been heard in public markets. And as a result, what is happening is that the voice that you hear the most, you feel that is the most representative voice. So I think balancing that that out is, I think, very healthy for a company. Of course, you need to deliver in the short term, but also you need to keep your eye in the long-term competitiveness and where your markets need to be for the long-term success of the organization. Yeah. And how has ESG changed over uh, time? I mean, what, what are the downsides from not using it in the right way? I think there are a couple of uh, downsides. The first one is waste of resources, basically, inside an organization, right? So one of the things that we have been able to see in our data is that take an issue such as uh, climate change and the rate at which the organizations are decarbonizing meaning reducing carbon emissions inside their operations or trying to reduce emissions upstream in their supply chain or for product use. And one of the things that we're finding is that that rate with which they're decarbonizing and the efficiency with which they're decarbonizing differs across competitors pretty significantly. For example, hotel operators might be investing exactly the same amount of dollars in decarbonizing, but they're achieving very different outcomes, both in terms of carbon saving, but also in terms of monetary outcomes, meaning cost savings from those decarbonization efforts. So, for example, different hotel operators, for example, Marriott and Hyatt and Hilton, brands that we all know, right? And they are investing $1, for example, per dollar of investment in decarbonizing, and one of them might be saving 6 kilograms of carbon per dollar of investment, and another one is saving two, actually. So we're talking about 300% difference, right? So in sometimes, and even larger in, in many cases, and one of them might be saving $2 per dollar of investment, and another one is saving 30 cents on a dollar of investment. So huge amount of differences. So I think efficiency and the proper allocation of scarce resources, one, but another one is also the whole challenge with good washing, right? So as uh, ESG is becoming, I would say, more mainstream and more standardized and so forth, there will be genuine efforts to improve ESG outcomes, but also there is a lot of cheap talk, right? Because people are feeling pressured to say something, to say that they are participating. That is tricky and risky uh, because the world is also building more accountability structures around ESG outcomes. So we see more regulators, for example, asking the question about, are you really walking the talk? We're asking, we're seeing more investors that are asking the question and holding companies accountable. We're seeing uh, more NGOs asking the right questions. So we see more, and we see actually perhaps even one of the most powerful forces, which is employees. Employees themselves asking their own organizations, are we doing the right things? Are we just saying that we're doing the right things? But George, uh, you have talked a lot about this, what ESG is and what it isn't. And I thought we had started to move beyond 
that discussion. But I was actually at a discussion today with a leading investor investing in public companies uh, in the technology space. And they were highlighting how great they were on ESG. And uh, then they were going into the portfolio and what they were doing, how now you know the gaming sector is very attractive to invest in. So I had to raise the question around what's the social impact of what they were doing and, and what's the, the outcome of those technology companies. So it still seems that there is a... So maybe it is, you know, what they're talking about ESG and I'm talking about ESG, these are, or you are talking about ESG, is, is different things. So, so maybe a little recap on what... ESG is not and, and, and what it is and should be? I think people have two, at least two, maybe even more actually approaches to ESG right here. The first approach and what has become more and more, I would say, widely accepted and mainstream in the market is that ESG is about risks to the organization and how exposed you are and how well you're managing those risks. That is one approach. And within that approach, you can actually fit any one organization, right? And say, how well is the management team reducing our exposure to those risks and how well you're managing those risks that are coming from environmental developments, from social developments, and so forth? And by the way, uh, George, I guess that's what Elon Musk is referring to when he is debunking ESG and sort of Tesla. And he's looking at that, right? And Elon is looking at that and he's saying, well, you know, that doesn't sound right to me, right? So that, that is, that doesn't say, yeah, that doesn't sound right to me. Uh, what sounds right to me? And that's where I'm getting at is the second approach, which is asking first the question, what is the impact that the organization is having on the environment, on employees, on customers, on the broader society? And then after that, asking the question about how is that impact being internalized by the company or is that a pure externality, which then leads to the valuation discussion, right? And the profitability discussion and the competitive discussion. But the first one is asking the question, if this company is going to scale up and grow, are we going to have a better environment or a better society or a worse society? Which requires you to actually measure and value the impact that the organization is having. I think that one, that definition that I think, Rainier, you believe very much in, I believe very much in, and I that's why I have spent a lot of time creating the impact with the accounts movement, and I think Elon also believes Mary Martin is something that is harder to get at because we actually need to be able to measure impact and outcomes, not just intentions that people might have and not just the risk that somebody is exposed to. And we also need to move to a perspective where we value those impacts, right? As a society that we say we actually value a more positive impact on the environment. We actually value a more valuable impact to the customer or the employee and so forth. I agree. So we moved, we need to move the narrative from risk and policies and what you do internally to what kind of impact you're having on externalities, how your customers uh, are being affected or the society or the environment through your, your supply chain. So 
what kind of effect does the company and its products and services have on, on those externalities? And that's why I'm super excited by impact with accounts that, that you have developed and, and that we are actually using in, in Summa of impact weighted accounts. Very, very simply, uh, Rainier, uh, impact-weighted accounts actually rests on two ideas. The first one is that we need to concentrate on actually measuring outcomes, not just policies, principles, targets, really intentions, right? Because intentions are, are good. They are necessary in order to get to outcomes. But at the same time, they don't always generate outcomes, right? And... They don't always generate outcomes because sometimes you have the New Year's resolution a phenomenon, right, in human nature, which is we all, every New Year, we make a resolution that maybe we'll go a little bit more to the gym, maybe we'll eat a few fewer cookies, right, and so forth. But that doesn't always translate into being a reality. And also because we have the good washing problem that we reflected on before, right, which is not always you will actually strive for those outcomes. So one, you need to measure outcomes. And the second one, you need to value outcomes. We need to actually understand how valuable those outcomes are. Otherwise, we have no way of prioritizing, right? What are we trying to do, right? So reducing carbon emissions versus creating higher paying jobs versus trying to increase diversity and inclusion in the workforce or increase affordability of a product. You know, the reality is that all of them are consumer resources. And in the absence of some type of valuation, we can all argue that we're good, right? So the question is, if you have a company that reduced, you know, 100 tons of carbon, but at the same time, which is, by the way, it's not a lot, right? By, by <laughs> to put things in perspective, as the world, we are emitting about 40 to 45 billion tons of carbon every year, right? But at the same time, they are paying below living wages for a vast number of employees. They have terrible health and safety records. People are getting injured left and right and so forth. Are you good, right? So we need to, be, we need to have some valuation mechanism as a society. So at the impact weighted accounts, we say measure outcomes, value those outcomes. Let's try to develop our technologies on valuing those outcomes in order at some point to be able to make a statement about and say, is this an organization that if it grows, back to your point and Lon's point, right? If it grows, then also society is better off. Or is it that, that this organization actually is having such negative externalities that actually we're not better off, right? So we need to be able to make that, I think, that judgment. And we're in the early stages of that journey as a society. Uh, let's not forget that also in the financial accounting space, it has taken decades, if not more time, to get better and better at the measurement of financial impact, but we'll get there and we need to accelerate. And I think creating that infrastructure is extremely important. Just as a follow-up question to you, Rainier, you've been using impact-weighted accounts for a while now. So what do you feel are like the results for SUMA? So what I like about impact-weighted accounts is it gives you, from uh, from our both an upside and, and a risk view of, of our portfolio going forward. You know, we buy companies, we own them for a number of years, we're going to sell them. And probably you're going to own them for five to seven years. We're probably going to sell them to an owner that is 
going to own it for another five to seven years or even longer term. So I need to think 15, 20 years into the future when I look at buying a business today and investing it. And we are sort of driving the strategy and uh, the company is already doing something positive, either environmentally or socially, and we want to high grade uh, that. So I want to see, are they really high grading what they're doing as well? So what Impact Weighted Accounts does is to give us a financial value of today. What is the impact and the outcome of their products and services? So just to give you the numbers now for a portfolio for last year, so the, the net benefit on, on, uh, on the climate side and the environmental side is plus 4%. So if you take all the climate emissions our companies have and also how much they save through recycling and, 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 and other products and services, the net is actually 4% of revenues. So if there was a, a full taxable uh, event and this would hit our P&L, our companies would be 4%, have 4% more revenues and hence also be more profitable. On the social side, it's 11%. So not only sort of how some of our companies do have positive health benefits um, for their consumers and, and uh, those using those products and, and services, but the jobs we create and, and the salaries uh, we pay have a positive externalities for the society. So adding that together, our portfolio, if they got the full, if they had to pay the full cost of negative externality impact and got the full benefit of it, it would actually have 15% more revenues and, and corresponding the profits. That tells me something about how future-proof this is because if there is more regulation, if there is a carbon tax, if there are social consequences, employees making choices, it tells me something about how future-proof this is and that these companies should be more valuable. And our return so far has shown that as well. So I think it's a fantastic way of really being able to, to, to compare. And it's done a transformation for our management teams as well. Suddenly they realize what's the value, uh, both negative impact and positive impact, and, and the upside and benefit of addressing those. So it's, uh, it's been super helpful and, and, and good uh, for us. Great to hear. George, early on, you, you've recognized and influenced actually SOMAS investment strategy as uh, doing ESG right, uh, which also led to outperformance on returns. And, and the results today really look, show that, that it is the case. But what do you think other investors can adopt from uh, SOMA? I think at least at least two pieces. The first one is, I would say, genuine commitment and authenticity. One thing that early on kind of like impressed me, uh, both from Rainier, but everybody I would say that I have met in the team, Christian and Tommy and Hannah and so many, many other people, is that they're willing to basically say, we're not all good. We need to improve. We need to do things better. And we want to keep away from the feel good, good washy type of things. And we need to take a hard look at companies, strategy, operations. How can we improve? So that perspective of being balanced and understanding and being an emphasis on improving has been a great one, I think. And the second one is alignment. I think one of the brilliant things, and I think Rainier, I, I have mentioned that to you before, that you did right from the beginning, is this idea of 
immediate alignment with the portfolio companies and the management teams. And I still remember some of the first meetings in Oslo where we had all the portfolio companies. And we tried to kind of like level set, right? And say, what do we mean by ESG, right? Let's, let's have a common understanding of that. Are we all on the same page? Do we all feel that this is valuable? How do we define in a way that is valuable? Why do it is important to engage the employees? So I think that early on alignment, it's, it's extremely important, Vesna, because much like the case method of Harvard Business School, when you actually lecture people and you tell them what to do, that learning is nearly not as powerful as the idea of engaging with people and actually arriving at the conclusions and feeling ownership of the ideas that have been discussed. So that, and that is happening with the case method. When you're having case method as part of the discussion instead of lecturing. So in a very, very similar way, engaging with the management teams of the portfolio commands early on and creating that alignment, I think then it's something that companies say, that makes a lot of sense. That's part of our strategy. And we have been engaged in that instead of something that we were lectured about. And now it feels like compliance for us. It's important to define your purpose and, and, and keep it simple and in everything you do to reinforce that. And I think that alignment and that commitment is, uh, has been extremely important. Initially, we got a lot of pushback from companies on how we were driving sort of sustainability into their strategy. They felt, you know, the reporting side, they felt it was a bit of a nuance and they had a lot of, you know, more important things to do every day with the business. But I do think that it was a consistent message. And then when we started to get the case examples and that we used also case examples early in the new companies um, and, and get that alignment earlier has been, been very important. It was a little bit more difficult in the start. It's, uh, now it's, it's released. How can we get more companies to think of ESG as strategy and not as compliance? And part of it, you, you've responded, both of you, in a way. But is there any other dimension that we need to think about? Vesna, to, to that question, it is important for a company to think about strategy-driving reporting and not reporting-driving strategy. I think because there has been such a big push towards reporting, many companies are responding to that pressure and that is creating a compliance environment. The right cycle is to ask the question and say, our strategy, if we grow, how can we have more impact? And through that impact, how can we communicate? So that is a strategy because that actually asks the question about what do we do differently? What is our competitive positioning? How can we improve our products and services and our operations and so forth? And then how does it get reflected to reporting? But the deadly mistake is to actually be reactive, respond to the pressure, making a reporting and compliance exercise, and then try to backtrack from that into your strategy. And that leads to a lot of frustration inside organizations. Do you have any advice to leaders on what they should do at this moment in time? Engage your workforce. 
engage employees, there is a tremendous amount of energy inside organizations among employees to be engaged in the sustainability efforts of the organization. But a lot of people feel that they lack agency to really engage and have impact. So I would say running crowdsourcing efforts and competitions for new ideas, allocating times through which people can really engage, that will be a very, very fruitful effort inside your organizations. And George, going back to you as a person, you know, I'm thinking, what, what do you aspire to now? Again, for me, being here at Harvard Business School, one of my main, I would say, outcomes is how can we actually educate more people, uh, students at every level of their careers that want to engage in that journey to improve all organizations? Because I fundamentally believe all organizations can improve and people can have can be agents of change inside organizations and at the same time uh, empower entrepreneurs everywhere around the world to create disruptive products and services that actually have more positive impact in the world. So how can we create the training programs to educate more people around the world? And that's why we're writing cases and creating new programs and so forth. And at the same, do impactful research. And for me, Vesna Impactful Research has several components, including building new tools and capabilities. So, for example, now we are deploying more and more artificial intelligence and machine learning models to create open access tools and data sets so even smaller organizations can really, in an easy way, create their own impact-weighted accounts, for example. So you can actually input a few data items and you can create them. And the same thing with measuring, for example, your carbon emissions, even your scope three carbon emissions. We have created machine learning models that can get a reasonable degree of accuracy to get a first approximation of what those might be. So we can democratize actually access to good measurements and metrics upon which management teams can create a baseline upon which they can improve. So I'm very passionate about that. And I think we're actually making good progress uh, with many colleagues that are working on those areas around the world. And and you've lived the first half of your life more or less in in Greece and the second in, in the US. And I'm wondering, how has that influenced you? You know, one of the amazing things, and and I lived in London for a few years as well, and that is very close to my heart. And I have had the the amazing experience of visiting dozens and dozens of countries around the world, giving talks, writing cases, interacting with with people from everywhere around the world. And for me, that's now one of the most amazing things is understanding that we we actually have much more in common than what actually separates us everywhere around the world. And I think when you're thinking about issues such as climate change, for example, those are global issues that require global cooperation and coordination. And uh, I do think that there are more things that we have in common and there are more things that actually make us a global community. And although in many cases we have frictions, actually most people 
want to come together and create common prosperity. Uh, and I think for me, that has been a very important message because it's really easy to wake up in the morning, go to the news cycle and be down about it. Read all the negative news, read about all the frictions, all the negative things that are happening in the world. And it's really easy to lose perspective of the fact that when you go around and you talk to people, most of us aspire to the same things everywhere around the world. And we need to come together and provide uh, global solutions. What do you think the world needs most right now? I think we need a lot of things. But actually, I think one of the things that most people knew is a little, most people need is somehow a little bit of more positive perspective. Again, it goes back to what we we're discussing before. There is so many negative news out there, and it's hard to. It's it's actually easy to lose. I would say a positive view of the world, and. I have found that this is actually really affecting negatively a lot of people and the psychology of a lot of people. So I'm wondering how can we create a little bit of a more balanced, actually, view of the world, that there are negative things that are going on, but there are a lot of positive things that are going on. And as a result, try to ask ourselves about how can we make progress to many of the challenges that we have, but not try to throw our hands up and say it's impossible uh, to deal with many of those things. But how can we create an environment through which more people can participate in the global change that we need? Thank you so much. And just as a final comment from each and one of you, Renio, what do you want to have as a, the main takeaway to in these minds and hearts of the people who have been listening? I think it is that we can all make a difference. And all the talk about ESG, so uh, it's really about ensuring that we have good outcomes for society, both environmentally and socially. So if we all, as employees, as leaders, as owners, focus on those easy and main areas uh, where how can we ha how can we create positive externalities then we can all do our part of it, little or big. And George, what do you say? I say that our emphasis, I think, growing up, and growing up is, is literally a process that's happening throughout one's lifetime, right? It's not, we tend to think about growing up as kids becoming adults, but I, I, I keep growing up every time that I'm having conversations, every time that I'm getting in the classroom and I'm learning something new from my own students uh, when we're debating a case, for example, should be with an eye on actually how can we have more impact and how do we blend that with profit? Because also we shouldn't forget that being profitable allows for an organization to scale up and provide more of those solutions that are needed. And I think the key ingredient is we need to actually be thinking about having more positive impact and scaling up those solutions in a way that really solve people's challenges and at the same time is creating a working environment where people want to participate. And I think that virtuous cycle 
between creating an environment where people want to be in the workplace and they want to be challenged, they are impressed with the people around them, and they are creating the solutions that customers need to solve their own problems is really something that I think we can all concentrate. And that's at the end of the day where the power of business can be as being a provider of solution. Great, great final words. Thank you so much, George. Thanks, uh, Rainer. Thanks for sharing. This is Summa and Friends, the show that inspires and guides you on how we together can create a wiser future. Listen to unique leaders and experts exploring the challenges we are facing and revealing their stories about the solutions and how to get there. Episodes are released bi-weekly on your favorite podcast platform. And the week after, we release an in-depth blog article to help you capture the core ideas from the dialogues and how you can help move things forward. Summa and Friends is a podcast for people with the courage to care for a wiser future. To find out more, you will find links and show notes on summaequity.com slash podcast. Hey, thanks for listening to the show. We hope it has inspired you to reflect on what you can do to contribute. And to make it easy for you to find and listen to this show again, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And please share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing it. I'm Vesna Luca, and you've been listening to Summa and Friends. And until next time, live with purpose and be the change you want to see. Mm-hmm.